A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Oh, well, yes, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Baroness Philippa Stroud, a Conservative peer, a church leader, founder of the Centre for Social Justice, currently the chief executive of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. So many roles and so much to unpack. But before we meet Philippa, I've got my Christmas tree. I've done the dad thing of going up a ladder and putting sparky lights on the outside of our house. And we have, as a family, decided that it is now acceptable to watch Christmas films. We've already had weeks of tedious controversy over the content of the Christmas adverts for various large businesses. And then over the weekend, we had a deluge of incredibly festive weather that brought with it chaos and hardship to many of my communities in Cumbria. A reminder that some things can look romantic, thrilling and magical at first sight, but be less so in reality. Advent is thrilling, but what it points us to is a reality that is epic beyond measure. It's a story rooted in eyewitness testimony. Here we're talking about hard history, not a feel-good festive fable. And what better way to mark this reality than to have an advent calendar offering us indulgent treats behind each door ranging, depending on your budget, from chocolate to Lego and from whiskey to perfume. Of course, the massive Christmas build-up is all a way of maximising the profits of a hugely commercial and secular festival. But as Christians focusing on the coming of Christ, we can use this time to reflect on the importance of the Advent period itself and as an opportunity to share the truth about Jesus with others. Advent is a season where we are called to be alert and watchful in prayer and expectation. We recall the moment when God entered personally into his messy, sinful world. His beautiful creation had been turned upside down by hate and greed and human selfishness, and he began to turn it back the right way up. Our hope lies in the promise that the helpless baby laid in the animal trough will one day return in glorious triumph to judge and restore all things. In the words of Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A reminder that we worship that baby, but we don't leave him in that manger. We follow him all the way to the cross and beyond. So we look forward with joy to the fulfilment of his new order, but we also feel the tension between the promise and the present reality of our fallen world. Our news continues to be full of war, famine, death and destruction. And this year, this tension is especially painful. The very place in which Jesus was born and from which this great hope of peace sprang, the Middle East, is caught up in the most appalling conflict that shows no sign of ending soon. How do we reconcile the fact of Jesus' birth and the promise of restoration with the brokenness all around us? Well, I've spoken in recent weeks about the idea of lament as part of our response to injustice and horror. The idea that Jesus can take our wordless groans and our audible cries and turn them into action. He invites us to take part in his process of bringing justice and peace. He wants us to act as his hands and feet to combat injustice and despair. Often we can just take small steps using what he's given us to work for change in the communities where he's placed us. 
but every small step pierces another pinprick of light into the darkness. At the first Christmas, the dazzling brightness of the angels on the hillside hinted at the vast potential of the light contained within this tiny baby born into a dark corner of the ancient world to a people living under Roman occupation. The hope that we hold on to today is that the darkness that we still see around us will be shattered and banished forever. So let's try and grasp that as we enter the Advent season and let's pray together one of the Church of England's Advent prayers. Come to your church as Lord and Judge. Help us to live in the light of your coming and to give us a longing for your kingdom. Come to your world as king of the nations before you rulers will stand in silence. Come to the suffering as saviour and comforter. Break into our lives where we struggle with sickness and distress and set us free to serve you forever. Maranatha, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. A mucky business with Tim Farron. Or so to our guest, Philippa Stroud is a Conservative peer, and amongst other things, he's the Chief Executive of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Philippa, it's brilliant to have you on the show at long last. Good morning, Tim. It's lovely to see you too. Oh, we're delighted to have you. We really are. And we'll start off with a question that well, we normally do with our guests, but I think it's possibly the most important one. Tell us about your faith, about how you came to call yourself a Christian, and what does that mean? Oh, goodness. Huge question, Tim. Um, I... When I look back um, at my life and kind of my faith journey, um, I think it's it's true to say that most children have a sense of the divine, the the of God, and then it kind of gets knocked out of them as they as they as they grow. And for me, I I I knew that there was I always knew that there was something that there was a God, but. Um, I wasn't in a in a in a family that went to church and that always puzzled me. I couldn't quite understand why some people did and some people uh, mm. didn't. Um but it was just it I guess that just began a kind of questioning curious spirit. Um but I was fortunate enough to uh, be at a school where my closest my closest friend was a Christian and came from the most um lovely Christian family. And all the way through my teens, I would watch how she lived and couldn't understand why she had this remarkable sense of peace. And I would go off and do all these wonderful kind of summer holidays and things. And she really wouldn't do an awful lot. But I would get back in the kind of September and look at her and she was like just so peaceful and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really catalyzed um, a genuine search for truth and, and the search for faith, which led me to becoming a Christian when I was when I was 17. And so you became a Christian at 17. What did that mean for you next? Did it shape choices that you made? Did it shape the career path you had? Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons why it had taken such a, a long time for me to take that step of faith, um, it was six years at, at school with mm. with um, uh, this friend of mine talking to me about her faith pretty much each, each day. But um, I was acutely aware of... Um, of, of passages like um, go sell all you have and give to the poor mm. and you will have treasures in heaven and things and passages like counting the cost um, of of um, the a confession of faith and um, I, I, those were not things that I that I took lightly so I think when I finally took that step of saying yes 
this is something I believe in, something that I that I own, something that's real for, for me. Um, I knew that it was putting me on a different path. Mm. And um, I had always thought that I would go into international banking. Um, my friends laugh at me when I tell them that now, but I, I did always think I would go into international banking. And I'd spent time during my university time in the city um, in uh, merchant banks, doing work experience and and learning, um, and and really, it it took a few years before I realised that the path that I had chosen was actually taking me on a completely different path. So mm. when I came when I came out of university, um, that was that was my moment to really choose which direction I was going to go in, and um, I ended up going to Hong Kong to work with uh, drug addicts. So that was a completely different uh, choice from international banking. Not hard, yes. <laughs> I, we, I wish we had the time to go and explore that properly. So let, let's instead fast forward, as I'm afraid I feel we need to, to get through things and ask. So from there, you find yourself in politics, involved in politics. What, what drew you to to the Conservative Party and to political activism? Yeah, so so um, if you go to that moment where I decided to go and work with drug addicts, for the next 17 years, I worked in frontline um uh frontline work it with with one addict at a time or one alcoholic building mm. um building houses that um could really see people's lives utterly utterly transformed and um and i think after 17 years of doing that i began to think you know some of these some of these um challenges are, are actually um, actually, national policymaking isn't helping these people. Uh, so I thought, how could you get ahead of this? How could you get upstream? How could you start like turning off the tap of some of the brokenness that was coming down to us? Mm-hmm. And that was the transition point for me, where I thought, if I could, if I could take what I've learned at a local level and bring it up onto a national level, that would be a good contribution to make. And that was the step that that I took. Um, I <clears throat> I um, helped co-found the Centre for Social Justice uh, within Duncan Smith. Long story in and of itself, um, and uh, that that so that's in effect was the catalyst for transition. How do you take up onto a national level the things I've been learning on a local level? So before you stood for Parliament, um, Ian Duncan Smith, who led the Conservative Party, then establishes the Centre for Social Justice, which still yeah. works. Indeed, I'm yeah. on a steering group on one of its projects at the at the moment. Fantastic. The, so the CSJ has, has established itself very much um, in the kind of thought landscape and policy landscape of the country. Tell me in a nutshell what it's for. What was it? What was its initial purpose, and what does it do now? Yeah. So the the purpose was to put social justice at the heart of British politics and was to be that constant reminder that um, uh, to, to, to think about and incorporate into policymaking the most vulnerable in our nation. And it was to look at how you reverse the levers of, bro- of, of social breakdown and how you build it from a government perspective, but also using every lever at your disposal, um, uh, how, how you how you reverse the breakdown um, in our nation um, that, that we are seeing. So particularly with a focus on family breakdown, um, education where it can be an opportunity for people to reset their lives, uh, mental health, debt and welfare dependency. So those were the big themes and asking what role can the voluntary sector play as well in pushing back on some of that some of that brokenness. 
and all that seems absolutely accurate to me. But when we're dealing with the um, the consequences of a uh, society that feels very broken, lots of inequality, lots of poverty, lots of people not meeting their potential, there is a tendency to move to just looking at all the levers that are directly in the hands of the government, what we pay yeah. for welfare, um, how we spend our money on education and so on. Often people are very, very nervous about talking about the family because how yeah. can the state control that? But I absolutely agree with you. Um, the family has a huge impact upon people's life chances, their happiness, well-being, call it what you like. How do we in politics have any influence over whether families are strong or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. One of the big conversations I, I had with civil servants when I was when I was in government for six years was like government shouldn't get involved in family policy like they shouldn't. They just shouldn't be there. But then when you actually look at how um, how government is already involved in family policy in a very significant way, you actually suddenly suddenly realise that um, much of our family policy is actually um, part of the problem. Mm. Um, you know, when you when you incentivise um, people with more money to live apart than to live together uh, through the welfare state, that 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 is that is problematic um, through through the couple penalty and. Um, uh, you know, I can remember having having you know huge debates uh, with officials about you know the role of marriage, for example, within within um, government policy and whether or not you can or cannot support that. Um, I think in the end, the most that they were prepared to accept was that it was good for a child to live with both of its birth parents. Mm. But obviously the most stable way of doing that is through um, is through a married relationship. All the statistics bear that out. So mm. sometimes I don't think we're really honest with people about if, if, if people are wanting the best outcomes for their families, what choices can we support them to make that will deliver that for them and for their aspiration? How do we support their aspiration? A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Philippa Stroud, who is the Conservative member of the House of Lords and is also Chief Executive of the uh, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Um, now then, uh, Philippa, in terms of what you're doing now, so you've mm. been in the House of Lords for how many years? Uh, nearly seven years. Nearly Amazing. seven years. And yeah. you spent, as you said a moment ago, some time of that in in government, in government yeah. roles. Tell me a little bit about those before we move on to the next thing. Yeah, so I, I was in government between um, 2010 and, and 2015. And um, I was a special advisor to Ian Duncan Smith on the welfare reform agenda, and then um, also took a role in number 10, advising um, David Cameron, again, on issues of poverty. Um, I don't know whether you remember, but those days were fairly turbulent. We were in yes, coalition please. together, uh, Lib Dems yes. and, and Conservatives. And um, the welfare agenda was one of the most hotly contested um, areas. And so there was there was always a lot of friction between number 10, the Treasury, uh, with George Osborne and with Ian um, in the DWP. And so a lot of my role um, was also whilst whilst supporting Ian with the negotiations on all all the major uh, budget um, and and autumn statements was also trying to keep communication channels open um, so that decision making flowed flowed more easily, which was challenging mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a it was a it was a real privilege. Um, 
and not an easy time. We were doing major reforms to the welfare uh, state at the same time as being in an age of austerity. I think that when we had envisioned doing those reforms, we'd never dreamt that they would coincide um, with an austerity agenda. Mm -hmm. We'd always wanted them to be um, pro pro work, um, pro social norms, um, but uh, you don't choose the time that you're in government, and yeah. you uh, you have as you know, and you have to um, go with the challenges of the moment. Now you found yourself a member of the House of Lords, yeah. Uh, and did you and you spent time? Um, tell me about the transition. You've been a special advisor. You become a member of the House of Lords. Is there any kind of gap in between the two? Uh, no, no. So I can remember the day that uh, David Cameron rang me and um, said, "Would I be prepared to go into the House of Lords?" And um, uh, I was just uh, overwhelmed, really. Yes, yes, I would be prepared to do that. And for me, it was always to speak up on behalf of those who couldn't speak for themselves. Mm. Um, and uh, that was that was what brought me into politics. And that is um, why I went in, into the Lords. And it's probably one of the reasons why I speak on issues of poverty, but also mm. on the refugee um, agenda. Um, and that's why that is so important to me and to you as, as well. Um, so, yes. Well, I, I want to just pick up that just for a moment. Mm. Um, so I, I think obviously we're much in common, Philip, uh, not least yeah. both uh, Christians, but also uh, the fact that sometimes we maybe jar with our parties a little bit. So, so I'm this I'm this lefty liberal who still thinks that what the Bible says about personal morality is right. And you're a conservative who sometimes goes against the flow on issues like asylum and refugees. So we jar yeah. with our own tribe sometimes. What, yeah. What's that like for you? I mean, I suspect it's it's I suspect it's slightly easier for me than it is for you, in that there's more grace for it in the in the Lords than 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 it is in the in the Commons. But you still find where the line is as well that you're about to to cross over. I think I think. All, all of us have to to think about what are our what are the things that are most important to us and that are no go areas and that make you you and mm. um, there are lots of things that um, the government does that I'm really happy to to support but on the issue of of refugees this is this is one that I think the Bible is quite clear on um, and uh, for me, every time, nearly every time the Bible talks about poverty, it also talks about refugees. Yeah. And um, uh, the, the two seem to almost go hand in hand. And um, so this is something that that uh, also I, I feel incredibly grateful. My, my own father was an evacuee during the war um, to Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, I look back at his story. I'm so profoundly grateful for it. And they modelled, my parents modelled to me taking care of um, the Ugandan nations when they arrived and the Vietnamese boat people when they when they arrived. And I think we shouldn't conflate issues like refugees, asylum seekers and immigration. We should have an honest debate about the differences between those, mm -hmm. those different categories. And I think one we are in control of. Um, and the other requires us to have a compassionate response, um, not a naive response, but a compassionate response. So those are those are some of the things that you and I uh, work on uh, yeah. together. Yeah, we we do uh, with an organisation called Ramp, which is Refugee mm. Asylum Migration Partnerships. That that's mm. for a that's for another episode. Now, that's for another episode. 
Philippa, I've got a, a great quote about you that I'm not sure if you're embarrassed about or whether you kind of secretly feel quite proud of it. It's from the Telegraph recently. It says that oh, Philippa no. is the most is the most powerful right winger you've never heard of. <laughs> so now I strongly suspect that that relates to your current role as chief executive of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, which had a quite a, a high profile um, conference relatively recently featuring the likes of Jordan Peterson and others. Tell us a little bit about ARC and um, and then what do you think its future might be? Yeah, thank you, Tim. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, we ARC is the most wonderful alliance of people who have come together from around the world, from Australia, um, Canada, the States, um, through to Europe, uh, Africa, all saying there's got to be a better story and that we're living in a time where the narrative is one of decline, permacrisis, polycrisis. Literally, you can watch any any news and the words crisis, crisis, crisis is like there repeatedly. And we've seen that the impact that that is having on people's um, uh, mental health, uh, people's sense of confidence in the future. And um, we have come together to say, is there a better story? And obviously, um, as someone of faith, I profoundly believe that there is a better story. Can we build something hope-filled that actually um, says to the next generation, there is something worth having children for, there is something worth living for, there's something worth being entrepreneurial for, there's something worth building towards, and that is our, that is a, a good future that we can have together. But if you only talk about decline and crisis, you, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling narrative, and uh, you end up um, seeing your economy go into decline, people's mental health go into decline. So this is really designed and created to say there is a better way. Um, and um, and we can create a better future together. And it's been wonderful to see, literally, we had a conference of uh, 1,500 people from 73 different nations of the world coming together to say, yes, there's a better story. I think many Christians will be uh, attracted to the notion of uh, there being a better story. And clearly, we believe as, as Christians there undoubtedly is uh, one that is eternal and we're in the middle of, which is dynamic. At the same time, the Bible has quite a lot to say about complacency. And so I absolutely hear what you say about not being doom mongers. But when there are real threats that face us, poverty, potentially the de decline of uh, the power of the democratic West in the face of anti-democratic other uh, centres of power, the reality of, kind of climate change and what it means for people, isn't it better to be realistic than just to be optimistic? So I think there's there's difference between being optimistic and believing that there is a better story or a better way of doing things. And the wonderful community that came together is um, entirely committed to the democratic, the liberal democratic order and to um, strengthening that. I mean, one of the um, one of the the key themes of the conference was how do you create a public square for the free exchange of ideas where we can sharpen and improve one, one another's ideas without attacking good people so mm. that we can move forward as societies. Societies have always moved forward through the refining of ideas in the public square and debate. If you make that 
um, impossible to do through an intolerant environment. You knock out good people uh, from the public square and you knock out their contribution. And the, the goal of ARC is really to ensure that good ideas can thrive and flourish and that we that bad ones get defeated in by by through debate and the free exchange of ideas, not through annihilating people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's one of one of the the key uh, factors uh, behind ARC. One of the nervousness, I suppose, that people like me might feel is that association with people like Jordan Peterson, um, who's an interesting person, don't get me wrong, uh, makes us worry a little bit about the Trumpification of Christianity in the UK. The thought that maybe uh, in order to for political purposes, some on some parts of the right might seek to appropriate Christianity because it kind of all falls part of a a kind of a, a, a traditional set of values and that it bolsters one's political um, standpoint. Isn't the danger sometimes that we can let our uh, politics define our faith rather than our faith define our politics? And is there any mm. risk of that being something that might come out of arc? Mm. I think one of the... Um, uh, one of the um, incredible... Uh, joys of being involved in ARC is is by is being part of a community of people who are genuinely seeking truth mm. and who are um not all people of faith by a long shot mm. and um you know people from very very different perspectives and I think that uh, one of the joys of of the UK is that there are Christian there are Christians in all parties, mm. and um, really people of vibrant faith in all parties. I think one of the challenges that um, the the US has, yeah. and you know, with reference to your Trumpification, mm. is that many of the Christians are found on on the right. That just simply isn't true in in the UK. Um, mm. You know, you and I have great friends in the Labour Party. You're in you're in the Liberal with the Liberal Democrats. I'm in the Conservative Party. And and we 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 work with one another, and I think that that is one of the uh, really important distinguishing differences mm. yeah. uh, between, say, the UK and and the US, and also the fact that ARC is is much broader um, than a than a Christian agenda as well. Well, it's a good place to come to an end. But what you say is absolutely right. Um, our good friend Michael Weir, uh, who's yeah. been a, on this program as well, is one one of these rare characters, a a white evangelical Democrat. Um, and we were talking about having a, an event, an online event, a few months ago, and I talked about the people I was hoping to bring along to it: Conservative, Labour, and SNP MPs. And he looked shamefaced that there was no way he would be able to do the same thing in the states and to gain. Yeah. Uh, people who are Bible-believing Christians of different political hues on the same stage. Um, And so that's true. We have an advantage in the UK. And to go back to what you said earlier on about uh, being optimistic, there are many challenges in the UK. One of the things that we've got going for us is that there is a plurality when it comes to people or followers of Jesus across the spectrum. And long may that continue philippa it's an absolute joy having you on the program i feel like there's a whole other interview to have with you <laughs> so we'll book you again if you're all right but no. uh, it's an absolute joy having you with us thank you so much for what you do and what you have done throughout your life you're a wonderful witness and it's great to have you on the program total joy thank you tim each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. 
Now, it might be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer to any of the above. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, Julie has been in touch and she says this. A quick question off the back of your excellent interview with Sir Stephen Timms. There seems to be an assumption in politics that economic growth is a fundamental good that we should always be working towards. Could you explain why this is and whether it's something that the gospel challenges? A shrinking economy is seldom good, but is there room for contentment at a national level? Is there such a thing as too much growth? That is an absolutely brilliant question, Julie. I suppose the reason, from my perspective, that economic growth is a good thing, it's a sign of an economy that is doing well, but it's also the way in which, via taxation, we're able to uh, bring in more resources to fund public services. We can afford social care, decent NHS, schools, police, and all the rest of it, if the economy is growing, and therefore the tax take is going, without people having to pay more out of their own uh, incomes themselves. So there's a real positive underlying reason as to why we would want economic growth for the good of our public services, for the good of equality, for the good of fairness and social justice. Having said all of that, it's based upon the ever vaster consumption of resources, some of which are finite. It's also based upon, to a degree, the sense that uh, personal growth is built upon our economic well-being. And whilst we want to make sure that people are not poor, having more and more stuff and being ever more materialistic, that's not a good place to build a society. It's worth bearing in mind, isn't it, that around the world, the places where Christianity is flourishing are the places where growth is perhaps less the case. And it may be that we in the West are people who have become so comfortable we don't think we need the gospel. So from a kind of secular uh, politician perspective, I absolutely see the value of growth and what it allows us to do in terms of a decent working set of public services. But I also worry that it's based upon a complacency that all that matters is us all getting a little bit richer. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's close our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we look forward to Christmas in so many ways. Many of us uh, listening to this show will be in need of a rest. Uh, many of us just focusing upon, uh, most importantly, the coming of Jesus Christ and what that means and what that has meant to the world, what it means for our personal hope. We are lifting up to you now events in Parliament, Christians in Parliament, holding a series of events over the coming days in the run up to uh, Christmas where we will have the chance to share the gospel with people who have yet to respond to it. We just pray for those opportunities to take place. We pray for Christians in Parliament to take advantage of those opportunities graciously and powerfully. And we pray for the response in the hearts of those who come along um, to be uh, one of accepting you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Saviour. And around the country, we just pray that Christmas would be an opportunity that Christians in every community would take to share the gospel with friends, with loved ones, with neighbours, with colleagues, and that there would be a flowering of faith as a consequence of this time. Um, Lord, we lift all these prayers up to you for the sake of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for a mucky business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash a mucky business. See you soon. Thank you.